Well, there is a, a story of a young mother hosting her first Thanksgiving. And like most mothers do on that first hosting of Thanksgiving, they follow their mom's turkey recipe uh, word for word. Uh, and so th- this young mother, uh, she, she's reading in the recipe, and the recipe calls for her to cut off the legs of the turkey uh, and to cook them separately. And so she, she does that, but she doesn't understand why she is uh, instructed to do that. So she calls up her, her mom and says, Mom, why do I have to, to cut off the legs of the turkey uh, before you know, doing everything? And, and her mom says, well, that's just always the way that I've done it, uh, and I've just been following my mom's recipe. Uh, and so uh, now mother, young mother, and then now grandmother uh, turn around, and they both decide to call great-grandma uh, and ask about this. So why is it that we have to cut off the legs of the turkey uh, before being able to, to cook it? And why do we have to cook the legs separately? And so they, they reach out to, to great-grandma, and great-grandma says, Well, when I first began to, to cook the turkeys uh, in my time, uh, the oven wasn't big enough to fit the entire turkey. So I had to cut off the legs and cook them separately. Uh, and so uh, the, the, the mother and the, the younger daughter, who's now the, the young mother, that they've just been, been doing something for years and years without really understanding why. And I, I, I think about that, and, and there are so many ways and so many things that we do in life that we just kind of go through the motions. Uh, we do it without thinking about it and without really understanding what we're doing and why we are doing it. And you could uh, replace that uh, idea of a turkey leg uh, with any one of our family traditions, probably, or any number of actual traditions and ministries within a local church. Oftentimes, we don't understand uh, what we are doing or why we are doing it. Uh, And uh, I think each one of us has a responsibility to guard against that kind of absent-minded ritualism where we just kind of go through the motions without thinking about what we are uh, doing. Now, we need to understand what we believe, what we are practicing, and why we are practicing it in that way. Uh, And uh, this is especially true for everything in the Christian life, uh, but specifically I want to look at this morning of what we believe and why we practice uh, the two ordinances of the church in a particular way. Baptism and communion, those two things go together. They have been given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ to mark out who is a part of his church. Uh, And so since we have two baptisms this morning, and I think we have four baptisms scheduled for uh, the coming weeks in September uh, and others uh, looming beyond that. I thought it would be appropriate uh, to talk this morning about uh, baptism. But as we, as we jump into this topic of baptism, I want to I frame this topic well according to theological triage. I mean, how many of you have heard of the word triage before? If you go into the emergency room, uh, they are going to make decisions medically about who needs to be treated first based upon the urgency of the injury. So if you uh, are walking in with a a broken ankle, uh, you probably are not going to be seen before the gunshot victim. Uh, And so they're going to do triage and they're they're looking at everything that's coming in and saying what is most important uh, and then what is secondary and then the third. uh, And they're going to treat those things uh, differently according to the importance. And so theological triage is going to take all of theological doctrine and say what is most important and then what are the, the first order issues and first order issues are those things that would put you into the Christian household. Uh, these are the beliefs that are going to set us uh, apart and dis- distinctify us. I just made up a word there. Um, 
they're going to be Christian distinctives. They're going to be uh, the, the, the lines drawn between other uh, Christians and other religions uh, and other worldviews. Uh, so that's going to put you in the, the Christian household, those first order issues. Second order issues uh, are going to put you in a particular room uh, in the Christian household. You're still a part of the household, uh, but you're going to be kind of, you're going to, denominations and individual churches are going to do divide, usually over second order issues, uh, things that pertain to how you're going to carry out uh, ministry in a local church. And then there's going to be third order or tertiary issues that are really going to put you into a corner in a room in that house. Uh, it's going to, to be smaller matters that are going to pertain to how we live the Christian life, how we disciple, how we counsel, what are we going to, to emphasize. And when we talk about this matter of baptism, we're talking about a second order issue. We're talking about something that we can disagree about uh, as Christians and still be faithful to Christ uh, and as we dialogue with those who may disagree with us about baptism, understand we're dealing with fellow Christians. Uh, and so we, we want to hold that intention as we discuss uh, baptism. But that being said, that it is a second order issue, it doesn't mean that it is not important. It is, it's very, very important because it pertains directly to salvation and faith uh, and the, the very heart of the gospel of how do you respond to what Christ has done. Uh, and it's also very important uh, in terms of just how we do church because baptism is going to mark out who uh, is a part of the church. And when you're talking about who's going to be baptized, you're saying who is included within the church and who's uh, outside of the church. And so, uh, but within that, when we talk about baptism, uh, and baptism is that an initiation into the church, uh, initiation into the church is different from salvation. Okay, you can be saved without being baptized. Famously, the thief on the cross, right? He didn't get down and get dunked by the Roman soldiers before uh, he entered into paradise with Jesus that same day. Uh, he entered into paradise without ever being baptized. So salvation is separate from baptism. Baptism does not save. Uh, it doesn't save anyone. Uh, and, uh, but it is very, very important. And ba again, baptism and communion are used by God to mark out who is a part of his church. Uh, and so it's very important that we understand what the Bible teaches about baptism and then we think through how we ought to practice uh, uh, what we are to believe about baptism uh, concerning this uh, important uh, ordinance. And so uh, as we look uh, at two things this morning, number one would be the practice of baptism in the Bible. Uh, and then secondly, the significance of baptism in the Christian life. I think you have that there on your, your notes handout. But I want to look at the, the practice of baptism in the Bible. And I want to begin uh, by looking at what baptism was uh, before the church age. The church age is going to be a little bit different in terms of what baptism is. But baptism before the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Uh, there were uh, many Old Testament ceremonial washings. Uh, we see them in Leviticus 11 to 17. We see them in Numbers. Uh, and the way Leviticus 11 to 17 uh, presents things and how it explains how somebody would be ceremonially unclean and unable to come into the presence of God, you read through that and you're like, well, this is going to be everybody. That at one point or another, every single person in Israel would have been unclean and unable to come into uh, fellowship with God and relationship with him at the, at the tabernacle without first being cleansed. And that was intentional. 
Uh, because it, it, God wanted Israel to understand that if you're going to approach a holy God, you need to, to cleanse, you need to wash yourself. Uh, and so those are going to be a picture of bigger spiritual realities and reminders that you, you have to do something before entering into God's presence. You don't enter into God's presence lightly. And so we see that over and over again in uh, the Old uh, Testament. And these washings were usually self-administered and they were to be practiced regularly. And many of them required full immersion uh, in the water that you had to go and, and uh, be cleansed and, and wash before being able to come into God's presence. And this is pictured uh, actually uh, with most easily with a Gentile uh, by the name of Naaman, uh, the, the general in the Aramean army in Second Kings chapter 5. Uh, he had a, a servant girl who had been captured from among the Israelites. Uh, and this little servant girl uh, speaks to her master who has leprosy. And she says, there's a prophet in Israel who can heal you of leprosy, which was an uncurable disease. Uh, and he says, really? And so he goes to the king of Israel uh, and says, where's this prophet who can heal me? And the king of Israel is like, what? How do I, how do I deal with this? And he eventually sends uh, this uh, general, the foreign general, to uh, the prophet Elisha. And Elisha is going to instruct uh, Naaman uh, in Second Kings chapter 5, verse 10. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. And then in verse 14 of that same chapter, He went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy and he was clean. So he dipped down into the water and he was cleansed of his leprosy. Uh, and so we see these types of full body uh, cleansings in the Old Testament. And then uh, actually in, in Mark chapter 7, verse 4, uh, we have the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders of Jesus' time, who were objecting and, and uh, attacking Jesus and his disciples because they hadn't gone through the ceremonial washings. And the word used there of the washings is literally uh, the word for baptisms. Like, hey, you haven't gone through your baptisms and cleansed yourself, and why are you not doing that according to uh, the, the uh, tradition of uh, the elders? Uh, and Jesus says, ultimately, well, that's the tradition of the elders. It's not the, the law of God. So there's a, a lot within there. But the idea of the full body uh, immersions was uh, adhered to uh, in Jewish uh, law and Jewish custom, even be in the Old Testament. Uh, and then... There is this guy who comes onto the scene at the beginning of the New Testament, but he's actually the, the last Old Testament prophet. He's known as John the Baptist uh, or John the, the Baptizer. Uh, and uh, John's baptisms were a little bit different from those typical Jewish uh, dippings or washings. Uh, and when he came onto the scene, Mark chapter 1, verse 4, it says that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, and he's, he's preaching a baptism that is different and unique from the Jewish baptisms. He's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So, so this is more than just a ceremonial cleansing. Uh, there is a, a spiritual significance to what he is doing out there in the wilderness. What he was doing and what he was, the baptism that he was proclaiming and calling people to was a baptism of repentance. That turn from your sin and turn back to God. That's what he was calling uh, the nation of Israel to. And he was, uh, the repentance, uh, it was implying a, a need for faith. If, uh, repentance is always a turn. It's a U-turn. If you're turning from something, you're also turning to something else. 
So the call is to turn from sin and to turn to God in faith. And John's baptism was different. It wasn't an ongoing thing. It was a one-time full immersion. It wasn't self-administered. John was the one doing the baptizing, which really placed him as kind of a mediator uh, between God and man, in essence bestowing or activating the forgiveness that was offered through repentance and faith in God. If you turn over with me to to Luke chapter 3, you also see what he was uh, calling people to. And baptism with uh, John the Baptist would also kind of mark you out as a distinct community of those who have turned from sin and were now living to God. And so it was initiating people into a particular community uh, of who were living no longer for themselves. If you if you look at Luke chapter 3 verse 10, you'll see what John called people to after their baptism and, and the specific ways he was calling them to turn from the sins that they were most likely to commit. Now, Luke chapter 3 verse 10 says in the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what should we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And the tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And soldiers were also questioning him, saying, What should we also do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or extort anyone, and be content with your wages. And so he's calling them to turn from the sins that they were uh, likely to be committing of extorting and stealing uh, and being greedy and and unwilling to, to love your neighbor. He's calling them to turn from that and to turn to a new way of life. Uh, and the Jew, Jewish leaders did not like what John the Baptist was doing. They didn't like this message that he was proclaiming. And it's possible because of who he was proclaiming it to. Uh, we're not certain about the, the time frame, but what John might be mimicking here is what's known as uh, Jewish proselyte baptism. That if a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, the Jews would have them go through particular things. And one of them was baptism. Uh, and the baptism, if you were going to a Gentile who was going to become a Jew, uh, your baptism would be, in essence, renouncing everything that had come before you. You were acknowledging that you were a sinner and that you needed to be cleansed to be in relationship with God. Uh, And so this is what the the Jews were having the Gentiles do if they wanted to be in relationship with God. But now here's John the Baptist, and he's proclaiming this same message not to Gentiles but to Jews. And the implication is he's saying to the Jews, you being a Jew doesn't necessarily guarantee that you have a relationship with God. That your uh, physical lineage is not what brings you closer to God. Uh, it's, a, it's a broken and contrite heart, a heart of repentance and faith to God, which will bring you back into relationship and bring forgiveness. That's what John the Baptist was proclaiming. And the Jewish leaders didn't like that. And earlier, I think here in, in Luke, when they came out and to, to correct him, in verse, yeah, Luke 3, verse 7, he says, you brood of vipers. Right? There's a way to win friends and influence people. Uh, as they, they come out to you. Uh, but, but he corrects them and rebukes them, and he calls them to repentance. Uh, and so this has been the, the, the practice of baptism. Uh, later on in Luke chapter 3, we see that Jesus himself was baptized. Uh, and Jesus was baptized not because he, he had any sin that needed to be forgiven, but Matthew chapter 3, verse 15 says that uh, when, when he, came, he came up to John the Baptist to be baptized, John the Baptist says, I need to be baptized by you. Can we, can we switch this around? And Jesus says, no, let it be done to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, 
Uh, and Jesus being baptized was not for his own sin, but really to, to be a perfect example to us. And when uh, all of the, everything that Jesus did perfectly in life, when we look to him in faith, all of his perfect obedience is attributed to us. So he needed to obey the law perfectly. So his perfect obedience, when we believe in him, his obedience comes to us and all of our sin goes to him. And so his baptism is really, really significant and really, really important. And it was at his baptism that kicked off his ministry. Uh, He comes up out of the water uh, and a voice booms from the sky and says, This is my beloved son. You shall listen to him. And, And I am well pleased with him. Uh, and the Spirit descends like a dove upon him, and that's what begins uh, Jesus' ministry. So it's a very significant moment. And then Jesus and his disciples go off into the wilderness, and they're baptizing. And we see that in John chapter 3. Uh, and John the Baptist's followers, are, hey, like, they kind of come and object, and they say, Hey, hey John, the, the guy that you baptized has even more followers. This isn't cool. What are we going to go do? Uh, and, and John says, He must increase, and I must decrease. That I, I was here to point to him. This is not about me. Wonderful example of humility there. So that, that's baptism uh, before and prior to the day of Pentecost and the beginning of the church. Within uh, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, uh, there, there's an updated pattern for baptism. Uh, and what we see over and over again in Acts, you can turn over to Acts chapter 2. Uh, what we see is there is this pattern of people hearing the gospel, the message that Jesus Christ is the Son of God uh, who was crucified to pay the penalty for sinners. Uh, the, the sin guilt that we have was paid for by Jesus on the cross. And all who would look to him in faith will be forgiven for their sins and reconciled with the holy God that they have rebelled against. That's the message of the gospel. It's a proclamation of who Jesus is and what he has already done. And on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we have Peter preaching there in the temple in Jerusalem. If you look at chapter 2, verse 37, he's speaking to this massive crowd and it says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men, brothers, what should we do? And I would say right then and there, that's a demonstration of repentance. And that's, that's a demonstration of faith. They've heard the message and now they're responding to it. They understand that they need to do something in response. And look at Peter's uh, instructions. He says, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter directs them, and you see this this connection. There's this pattern of hear the gospel, there's repentance and faith, uh, a response to the gospel, and then immediately after that, as soon as possible, what do they do? They baptize them. And that same day, uh, 3,000 people were baptized. That was a really long line, logistically. We have two today, and we have lots of stuff to do. But 3,000 people. Someone was, was counting and keeping track. And what a celebration that would have been on that day. And uh, there's new instructions here. And what what Peter says is going to differentiate the baptism that these 3,000 experienced from every other baptism prior to that, every other ceremonial washing prior to that, because they are to be baptized in whose name? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That's the the name. So you're being baptized uh, under him and into him. 
Uh, that's the idea here. So this is an updated pattern for baptism. So there was not a long period of time between hearing uh, and believing and baptizing. There was an urgency to baptism. Again, we see this on this very day when 3,000 are baptized. We see this all throughout the book of Acts, where uh, in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip is uh, explaining Isaiah 53 to him, and, uh, and he understands that who the suffering servant is in Isaiah 53, and then they're right there next to water, uh, and the Ethiopian eunuch says, well, can I be baptized? There's water right here, and Philip says, sure, let's, let's baptize you, uh, and he, he does. Uh, and then uh, elsewhere in the book of Acts. Now, I love Acts chapter 22. If you turn over there, now, Acts chapter 22, uh, we have the apostle Paul giving a testimony, standing in front of a, a crowd in Jerusalem, giving testimony about how he came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. In Acts 22, beginning in verse 12, he's going to be, be describing uh, how he came to faith. He says, now, uh, he was on the road to Damascus, uh, and he sees a, a glory. Actually, we can, let's back up to verse 6, chapter 22. But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me beheld the light to be, sh- to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What should I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise, rise up and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been determined for you to do. But since I could not see because of the glory of that light... Being led by the hand by those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Now a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And at that very hour, I regained my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Look what he commands him to do. He says, rise up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So this is, this is the pattern. You hear the gospel, respond to the gospel in faith, and then be baptized. Uh, and that quick turnaround also meant that at times you were going to have people who profess faith in Christ uh, and who weren't really willing to follow him. And, and we, see, we, we talked about the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. A little bit later on in, in that same chapter, you have another man who is uh, named and who is baptized, but who eventually falls away. Simon the magician. He, he's baptized, uh, and then when he sees uh, the... The apostles come and lay hands on people and give the, the, the gift of the Spirit. He says, I want that power. I'll give you money if you give me that power. Uh, and Peter calls him to repent. He says, you can't give money to, to get the power of the Spirit. And Simon the magician doesn't repent. He says, well, pray that what you have said, is the judgment that you've spoken of, pray that that doesn't happen to me. He doesn't turn. Uh, the, the the parable of the soils in Mark chapter four also tells us that there's going to be some some people who profess faith in Christ and and they grow up really quickly for a moment 
but then over a period of time, they'll, they'll wither and fall away because they have no genuine root in Christ. The, the cares of this world, uh, when there's persecution because of the word, they, they fall away. First John 2.19 speaks of those people that they went out from us because they were not really of us. For if they were of us, they would, not, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would, would be manifested that they all are not of us. I love what one uh, historian uh, describes in terms of the practice of the early church. So the early church began to, to see this. If you have people who are baptized and then suddenly they're not following Christ. So I think the, the early church pendulum swung the other way. So if you, if you realize you're baptizing people too quickly, what's the other error that you can swing to? Well, waiting too long to baptize people. This is what one historian says. Uh, he says, in, in Acts, we are told that people were baptized as soon as they were converted. And this was feasible in the early Christian community where most converts came from Judaism or had been influenced by it and thus had a basic understanding of the meaning of the Christian life and proclamation. But as the church became increasingly Gentile, it was necessary to require a period of preparation and trial and instruction prior to baptism. And this was uh, what was known as the catechumenate, uh, which beginning by the third century lasted at least three years. And the tradition was that they would instruct somebody for three years uh, before baptizing them. And they would usually baptize them on Easter or Pentecost. And then they would baptize them and then they would partake of their first communion after three years. That's a very different practice. I, I think, I'm not advocating that, but I think, in, in, again, attempting to avoid one error, the early church pendulum swung over to another error. I think three years is a long time uh, to wait in evaluating uh, someone. But I think there's, there's wisdom in, in waiting a little bit. And uh, I think that the New Testament pattern, again, of seeming to, to baptize quickly, uh, I think that the best practice is to baptize as soon as you can while also evaluating the, the faith sufficiently. Does this person understand the gospel? Do they understand who Jesus is and what he's done? And has there, be, has there been a, a turning from sin in their life? Do they understand the commitment that Christ is calling them to? And there's going to be times where churches get that wrong. And churches are going to get that wrong. The apostles even got that wrong. So we need to, to understand and be prepared for that. So that's the, the typical practice of baptism in the Bible. But now I want to look briefly at the significance of baptism in the Christian life. Uh, and I want to begin, when we think about the significance of baptism in the Christian life, again, I want to, want to clarify what it is not. It does not save a person, and it doesn't uh, even wash away any person's sins. Uh, it's interesting to read church history because you start to, to see doctrine being worked out. Uh, and in the early church, uh, another church historian says, uh, that uh, the early church practice was that believers' baptism was the main method of baptism uh, in the fourth century, even though there's indications of uh, infant baptism in the in the second century. But th- there was a wrong view that baptism would wash away all of your previous sins and it wouldn't cover any of your future sins. Uh, and so people uh, wouldn't baptize their infants, most notably. Uh, Monica, the mother of the great theologian uh, Augustine, she didn't baptize him in, as an infant uh, because she was worried about all of the, the sins that he was going to commit as a young man and as a teenager. Like, I know my boy is going to sin, so if I baptize him now and cover his sins as an infant, then he's not going to be covered later. And so people would delay baptism until like the last possible moment. They would be on their uh, deathbed, and then they would say, now can I be baptized? And actually, the most famous example of that is actually the Emperor Constantine. 
who wasn't baptized until on his deathbed, literally just before he died, he was baptized because he believed that baptism would wash away all of his previous sins, but not any uh, future sins. So there, there's been some, some unique ideas and, and uh, wrong ideas about baptism throughout uh, church history. But, uh, so if, that's, if baptism does not uh, actually wash away any sins and it doesn't save, what is its significance? I would say, uh, number one, baptism is a demonstration of an individual's faith and repentance. That there is, again, a connection between your own personal faith uh, your own looking to Jesus in faith and turning from sin and your baptism, right? There's nobody in the book of Acts who was baptized for someone else's faith, right? There, there were no children who were baptized because their parents believed. Individuals were baptized based upon their own profession. And we see this throughout the book of Acts. Uh, and we also see that baptism uh, is an act of obedience to Christ. So it's a, uh, it's a demonstration of faith and repentance, and that's the, the acknowledgement that you're making uh, to the world, that, that you're turning from sin and turning to Christ in faith. And baptism is also an act of obedience. It is commanded. Uh, and I love what Charles Spurgeon says. Baptism, if not essential to your salvation, is essential to your obedience to Christ. Uh, that Jesus uh, has called every single person uh, to look to him in faith and to be baptized. That's the, the heart of the Great Commission. We make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has, uh, has commanded. So baptism is a demonstration of faith. It's an act of obedience. Uh, if you turn over with me to Romans chapter 6, there's a wonderful passage here uh, for this uh, next point of what baptism is. Baptism is an illustration of our union with Christ. As I, as I said before, when we, when we look to Jesus in faith, we get all of his righteousness. He takes all of our sin. There's a transaction that takes place, but that transaction takes place because of a, a bigger theological reality that's called our union with Christ. Uh, and so as, you, as we read Romans 6, 1 through 11 here, look at all of the, the different uh, occasions in which it, we are described as being in Christ or in some aspect of his life, death, and resurrection. Beginning in verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin." For he who has died has been justified from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what we see here is that when we believe in Christ, when we trust in him, we are, we're given a, a new heart. We're united with him uh, by faith. 
Uh, he is in us and we are in him and we are identifying with him in his life, death and resurrection. And when we baptize somebody, we're acting that out. There's a significance to that. We're demonstrating what is already invisibly spiritually taking place in the, in the life of that person. The person goes down into the water. Uh, their old self, their old man has died. Right. They, they are completely covered. They're in the grave, but they don't stay underneath the water. Thankfully so. Right. Uh, Bruce may hold you down a little bit longer, but um, they go down into the water and then they they come up. Jesus went into the, the grave, but he didn't stay dead. He, he rose again to newness of life. And that's what is being acted out in the waters of baptism. That the person has died to their old self, their old way of living. They've turned from sin and they've turned to Christ in faith. And now they've been raised again to live no longer for themselves, but to live for Christ, who loved them and gave himself up for them. That's what baptism is communicating and portraying. So baptism is a demonstration of faith. It's an act of obedience, and it's an illustration of our union with Christ. Fourth, baptism identifies an individual with Jesus and with his church. There is uh, the invisible church, and there's the visible church. The invisible church is made up of every single believer who has uh, lived from the day of Pentecost uh, until the, the day of the rapture in the future when Christ uh, is going to call the church to be back with him. So that is the church age. Uh, every single uh, believer uh, during that time across geography and, and time is a part of the invisible church. And it's called the invisible church because the, those individuals are not necessarily immediately marked out once they place their faith in Christ, right? You don't, your skin doesn't turn blue when you believe in Jesus. There's an invisible spiritual reality that takes place. But other than, than that, you're going to live differently, but nothing else happens uh, physically. Uh, that's the invisible church. But then there's also the visible church, which is local manifestations that are limited in geography and time. Uh, and every single believer who's a part of the invisible church should also identify with the visible church. Right? And so when somebody uh, baptizes, again, this is similar to John the Baptist, his baptisms were not self-administered. He was the one doing the baptisms. Christian baptism is the same way. Right? Hunter and Maggie are not going to to baptize themselves. They're going to be baptized by somebody else. They're really baptized by the church, uh, acknowledging that their profession of faith uh, is sincere and, and legitimate, and we're acknowledging that they are following Christ. That's what they're proclaiming. They're saying something as they're baptized, and we're saying something as we baptize them. And they're identifying not only with Jesus, but also with his church, uh, the invisible church throughout all time and space, but also with this visible local church. Uh, I love uh, a definition from uh, Bobby Jameson, a pastor and theologian. He says, baptism is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's uh, union with Christ by immersing him or her in the water and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting the believer to the church and marking him off, him or her off from the world. A baptism is a, is a significant event and it should not be entered into lightly. And if you were to go to visit a church in a predominantly Muslim country, believers there know the significance of baptism. Muslims there know the significance of baptism. If someone were to come to faith in a predominantly Muslim country uh, and they were to decide to get baptized, they would in essence be signing a, a death warrant for themselves. And it's likely that one of their own family members would be the one pursuing their execution. Because if somebody 
renounces, and they understand that. Muslims understand that if somebody is baptized, they are renouncing Islam. They are turning from Allah, and they are turning to Christ in faith. That that's what, They perfectly understand that. And because of that, there's a, there's a, a warrant out for them. They have uh, a, uh, a threat on their life immediately. And so baptisms in, in those countries, they don't get to, to gather together like this. They go out way into the wilderness. And they might be able to do it by the light of day, or they might go way into the wilderness and still do the baptisms in the middle of the night. Because they understand what is taking place in baptism. That somebody is identifying with Christ and his church. And they are rejecting and turning away from everyone and everything else. They're saying, I am now following Christ. And it's amazing that churches around the world understand that. But here in America, more and more churches are treating baptism very, very lightly. Uh, Baptism is is encouraged... uh, without really evaluating anybody's understanding of the gospel, without evaluating anyone's profession of faith. Uh, it's treated really as a religious experience, kind of what we would be called uh, spontaneous baptism. Say, hey, whoever wants to come down and jump in the water, let's do it. And, and I think that denigrates what is taking place. Uh, and it gives a false assurance, because if somebody who doesn't know Jesus comes and, and is baptized, what are they going to look to? They're going to look to that baptism and say, now I've trusted Jesus and I think I'm saved because this. Uh, and th- there's a, a great number of people who have been baptized but don't understand who Jesus is and what he's done. There's no recognition of sin. There was a, a, a church back east in North Carolina, uh, I think Elevation Church, Stephen Furtick's church. They, they published a document on their website, and it got a huge backlash. They, they posted it, and they quickly pulled it down. It was a how-to guide for spontaneous baptisms. And it was a how-to guide on how to manipulate people the day of the baptisms to encourage more and more people to come forward. And it involved planting people in the back of the auditorium and having them, when the music began to play, having them walk down the aisle in the most visible ways. Because when you see other people pursuing baptism, what are you likely to do? You're likely to be moved and manipulated into going forward. You may not understand anything that's taking place, but other people were doing it, and so I'm going to go do it. And that is a a tremendous injustice to the gospel, to Christ, and to what baptism is intended to be. And it gives people a false assurance. Baptism is intended to identify those who have believed and are following Jesus. And that works well when a person remains in the same church that they were baptized in, right? It, it, the people that we have baptized, we know their profession of faith. We know uh, that they are following after Jesus. We've been able to hear their testimony and evaluate their life. But what happens if you change churches? What if you... you hypothetically, move from California to Idaho, right? right this is not the, the church that you were baptized. Just hypothetically, right? Maybe some, of you, maybe some people might move from Washington or Oregon. But if, if you move to a different church from the one that you were baptized in, how does that new church know and evaluate your profession of faith and your testimony, anything? And that's where in the New Testament what there would be is letters of commendation, letters of recommendation. That's where churches should talk to one another and find out, hey, this person who's coming from that church over here, what is their profession of faith? Have they been baptized? 
uh, what was what what was their involvement uh, like in uh, your church body? And so that's where letters of commendation are important, and that's also where the uh, the concept of membership is important. Uh, because if somebody who has been baptized at another church and is walking faithfully with Christ, and then now they're coming and being a part of our church, uh, we would want to go through the membership process, evaluate all that, contact the other church, hear you know the recommendation, and then be able to announce that to this body and say, hey, this person has been baptized, they're walking faithfully with Christ. And so that, that's where all of these things merge together. Uh, baptism, membership, and then also communion. Uh, if baptism is walking through the doorway and entering into the Christian household, uh, communion is eating at the family table uh, and being able to participate. And it's the ongoing fellowship. It's the, the ongoing acknowledgement that I'm following Jesus. So if somebody was under church discipline, what would we do with regard to communion? We would withhold that from them and say, right now we're calling you to repent because you're not walking with Christ. And we're going to call you to turn back to Jesus and then you're welcome at the family table. Uh, and that's the, the, how all of these things fit uh, together. Uh, and uh, so that's what we have to, to treat baptism and communion uh, sincerely and treat them uh, with a high view. that There is a spiritual significance to them. And we need to follow what the scriptures have said because this is going to help mark out who's a part of the church. I would also say this. We've talked about what baptism is. It's a, it's a demonstration of faith. It's an act of obedience. Uh, it is a picture of salvation. Uh, it is also going to be a reminder for those who have already been baptized. And I would say this, as we get to witness two baptisms uh, this afternoon, uh, those who have been baptized get to reflect upon what is already taking place in their own life. Right? Th- these two people are going to uh, say, I'm, I'm turning from my old life and I'm turning to, to live a life for Christ. Uh, those who have been baptized need to reflect upon that same commitment that we made. Uh, sometimes it's easy to forget, right? Uh, and uh, it's easy to begin to just go through the motions, like the turkey legs, cutting them off, right? Why do we do that? I don't know. We just do it. Well, what are we doing in the Christian life? I don't know. I'm just kind of floating. Uh, we need to think intentionally about everything that we're doing and what has taken place. Uh, it's, a, it's a reminder of our own commitment to Christ. And it's a reminder that we need to continue to press forward in community uh, and and proclaim the gospel to others as well, that we must be going uh, to make disciples, baptizing and teaching them to obey. So baptism is an act of obedience that has a spiritual significance that really is unparalleled in the Christian life. It's intended to be that outward proclamation uh, that you are with Jesus and Jesus is with you. And I think I think Satan knows the the significance of baptism and communion and, and there is an intentional confusion on those matters uh, because if you can if you can get churches to blur the lines on who's in the church and who's not in the church then you you will give people the biggest lie ever you can convince people who don't know christ who don't have eternal life to think that they have that that they have relationship with god and that's the greatest disservice Again, our own modern American culture has been thoroughly confused about baptism. And again, but this is not, not unique in history. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was an amazing preacher and pastor uh, of a, a large church in London in the middle of the 19th century, he faced uh, a similar problem in his own time where uh, the, the, the record says that uh, about 60% of Londoners in that time were professing to be Christians. Uh, and Charles Spurgeon didn't believe that was actually true. 
for 60% to say, hey, I'm a Christian. Uh, and so th- this is what, what he wrote uh, about. He says, in going up and down this land, I am obliged to come to this conclusion that throughout the churches there are multitudes who have a name to live and are dead. Religion has become fashionable. The shopkeeper could scarcely succeed in a respectable business if he were not united with the church. It is reckoned to be reputable and honorable to attend a place of worship, and hence men, men are made religious. And he said this situation was not helped uh, by the pastors watering down the distinction between the church and the world uh, in an effort to, to reach the unsaved. So Spurgeon writes this as well. He says, uh, they, speaking of the pastors who are watering down baptism, he says, they, they say, do not let us draw any hard and fast lines. A great many good people attend our services who may not be quite decided, but still their opinion should be consulted and their vote should be taken upon the choice of a minister. And there should be entertainments and amusements in which they can assist. The theory seems to be that it is well to have a broad pathway from the church to the world. If this be carried out, the result will be that the nominal church will use that path to go over to the world, but it will not be used in the other direction. So if the church builds a large gateway from the world to itself, he says it's actually going to be the church going out into the world. It's not going to be the world going into the church. And so and, and to kind of direct this and to, to safeguard what it really meant uh, to be a, a Christian and to to be in, in fellowship and to be a member at their church. Uh, Spurgeon had a membership process that consisted of six steps. I want to just lay them out really quickly and briefly. But it began with a, uh, somebody having an, an interview with one of the elders of the church to begin to verify uh, their testimony, the understanding of the gospel. Then they would have an interview with Spurgeon uh, or one of the other pastors. So an elder interview. Then step two was a pastoral interview. Uh, step three was a proposal to the congregation uh, and the assignment of a messenger. So they would, in one of their uh, members' meetings, they would announce somebody as being up for membership, and somebody among the members would be assigned as a messenger. And then that was step four. A messenger would go to the person's workplace, to their home, uh, to their neighborhood, and, and find out about this person. Is this person's profession of faith genuine? And on one of those uh, occasions, uh, a suspended policeman applied for membership at the tabernacle, uh, and Spurgeon encouraged the messenger to go make a careful inquiry uh, at the police station. So why is this policeman suspended? Right? We want to know what's going on there. Is this going to be a taint to the, the witness in the, of Christ, in the name of Christ? So the, the, there would be a, an inquiry from the messenger, and then there would be a congregational interview and a vote. So once the messenger was finished, uh, the congregational meeting would, would uh, at the next congregational meeting, he would report his findings uh, and present them and, and do all of this. And then lastly, if they were satisfied, then there would be uh, baptism, if necessary, and communion. Uh, and so there was a significant process. Uh, and you might think that this would scare people away. But the, the meeting minutes of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, the, the church that Spurgeon pastored, from 1854 to 1892, reveals that 13,797 people submitted themselves to member, the membership process during that time. Nearly 14,000 people. Uh, and even as hundreds of people were joining the church each month, uh, so this process uh, was followed through consistently throughout Spurgeon's ministry. And Spurgeon often saw great crowds uh, come out for his open-air preaching. Uh, but what was discouraging, that he would preach and then he would have no follow-up. 
Uh, and so he, they put this process in place because at the, at the church, they were able to, as people were converted, as they heard the gospel, uh, as they responded in faith, and then as they were baptized, uh, they were then being able to, to be brought into the church, to be disciples and uh, poured into and encouraged to help in uh, contributing to the work of the church as a whole. Now, and this, this allowed for a tremendous really, work of the God to, to grow that church. Uh, Spurgeon's brother, his co-pastor, wrote this about the membership process. He says, We have never yet found uh, it to tend to keep members out of our midst. While we have known it of service in detecting a mistake or satisfying a doubt previously entertained, we deny that it keeps anyone uh, worth having. It keeps away anyone worth having. Surely, if their Christianity cannot stand before a body of believers and speak amongst loving, sympathizing hearts, it is as well to ask if it be the cross-bearing public uh, confessing uh, faith of the Bible. So, in essence, if this person is not even able to. Uh, to stand among the church and profess their faith and to live faithfully, how are they going to go and do that in the unbelieving world? Uh, and so there, there's, there's a significance to baptism. We want to take it seriously. Uh, we've had a private investigator follow. No, uh, um, we, we haven't uh, done that. But we, we, have, uh, we have done interviews. We, we've, we've talked with Hunter and with Maggie. Uh, we, we've gotten to, to live alongside them to see uh, how Christ has uh, changed their life and impacted them. And we can't wait uh, for them to have the opportunity, even as we read in Acts chapter 22, where the Apostle Paul was proclaiming to this crowd in, the, in Jerusalem how he came to faith in Christ. We get to hear that from them, and we get to rejoice with them as they uh, go into the waters of baptism. 